All right, good morning. Come on in. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Let me pray for us and we will begin. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time where we can gather together before our uh, morning service to just look at the truths of your salvation. It is an incredible thing to get to stand and just observe the wonderful works of God. There is uh, no greater reality than the eternal God of the universe knows us, cares about us, comes for us when we do nothing but rebel uh, and sends his own son, his beloved, the one who he has been eternally pouring out his love on to redeem us that we might be your sons and daughters. That is an incredible thing. And we who have received that wonderful salvation get to look back and see that it is a plan that you have set out. It is not random duct tape you have put upon your creation as after Genesis 3. It is your plan. It's what you've thought. It's what you've initiated time and time and time again. And so I pray for this morning as we, as we look at it, that it would solidify again in our minds throughout this semester that salvation is something that flows from you. It is not an abstract truth that we can't wrap our fingers around, but we really hope is true. Rather, it flows from our Heavenly Father who loves us. It flows from your wonderful Son who came for us. It flows from your Spirit who dwells within us. And we pray that you would just set our eyes on that this morning. You would help me to just pull out the beauty of your Word uh, and that it would be something that nourishes our souls, Lord, not just as a good reminder, but as the life that we were meant to participate in. So we love you, Father. We pray that you would do that by your Spirit's work and power in our hearts and by the truth of your word. And pray in your Son's wonderful name. Amen. Okay, good morning. Uh, we've been walking through this semester, uh, the study of soteriology, this, this theological term that just means salvation, and we've titled our, our, our semester, Salvation, Life in the Sun. Like I just prayed, and like you've heard over and over again, we are not about just knowing true things about God. That's good. That's a great starting point, but it is a starting point. It's not an ending point. If we end there with just understanding true things, it will always be abstract. God will always be disconnected from these truths, from his word. Uh, and so you will have things like we believe true things uh, and we walk with God, but we don't really know how those merge. Uh, and we, we looked in our first week, that's, that's not a problem the scriptures have. The scriptures are very much uh, uh, unpack for us the living God who comes and draws us in to his very life. Jesus come, comes to us and doesn't say, I have the way, I have the truth, I have the life. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so we want to see truth that we study from God's word flowing from his very person. So we started off this semester with the Trinity, looking at uh, how God in and of himself is the father who's been eternally loving his son by the uh, fellowship of the spirit. And that's actually what we get invited into as we're united to Christ. We'll look at union with Christ later in the semester. We then looked, Lee gave an excellent teaching on uh, election. What does it mean to be elected by God? What is the scriptures constantly talking about with predestination and election? Last week, we looked at sin and we talked about how we have to look at sin in the semester about salvation. Salvation will not make sense to us if we don't look at sin, if we don't see what we are going to be saved from, and if we, in fact, have a little view of our sin, then we'll have a little view of our Savior. Those who are forgiven little love little, Jesus says, but those who are forgiven much those who know there's an infinite chasm between them and the fellowship with God that they were made for, and there's nothing they can do to make up that gap because we are wholly unable to save ourselves, yet that God that we rebelled against comes and saves us, now I can love much. The greater we see the chasm of our own wickedness, the greater we will see his love because his love crosses that chasm. You see that? So we looked at that last week. We looked at, if you want to think about it in chronological order, we, we stopped last week with us getting kicked out of the garden. We stopped by looking at our depravity, how every single bit of us is affected by sin. We're not utterly depraved. We're not as sinful as we possibly could be, but every single part of us as sinners, we have a sinful, depraved nature. That's where we stopped last week. And if that's where the Bible stopped we would be a very sad people. In fact, we wouldn't be here 
today, but thankfully we have the rest of this semester, and we're going to look at today right when we get kicked out of the garden, right at Genesis 3, we're going to see the very next thing we see is God's unfolding plan of salvation to bring us back. So we're going to look at, through the rest of this semester, the life of Jesus, how Jesus comes and accomplishes salvation for us, and then we're going to look at how salvation gets applied to us. But before we get there, we have to see salvation is not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It is very much flowing from the heart of God. So that's what we're going to look at today, this plan of redemption that God has, this plan of salvation that we're primarily going to see through his covenants. We'll look at covenants a lot throughout this teaching, but right after God sends us out of the garden, he doesn't leave us in our sin or in our exile. He immediately launches out this plan, not just to deal with our sin, not just to remove our depravity, although that's part of it, but ultimately to bring us back to himself. Okay? So let me just ask the opening question, and I've touched on this a little bit. Why is it important that we see that there is a plan of salvation? Why might that be important? Then we have purpose, yeah? We see that there is purpose in general. There's no, there's no meaninglessness if God has a plan, yeah? Why else? Give us hope, yeah? Absolutely. One more. Assurance that there's a God who's actually watching out for us and when we rebel, there's someone who's initiating something, absolutely. Yeah, I think all those are exactly right. Uh, I think there's also perhaps a, a, a tendency as we are quick to listen to the condemnation of the evil one and we're quick to just uh, be overwhelmed with our own guilt, even post-salvation, we're quick to think salvation is just God kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Like he made this beautiful creation, it's good, it's very good, and then we messed it up, so what else is he gonna do, right? Of course he's gonna redeem us or else maybe he looks bad, right? So he's just, he's doing, what he, doing whatever he can to actually just kind of, you know, it's a little begrudging. You know, he loves us, sure, but he doesn't really like us. He's constantly exhausted with how much we rebel. We, we tend to think, we tend to have those sorts of uh, ideas up behind God's motivation. It maybe is a, a, a doubt of his character, And so I think seeing God's intentional plan of salvation shows the absolute opposite. It highlights not just that, God is a God who gives promises. Anybody can give promises, wicked or good. But he's not just a God who gives promises, he's a God whose character shines forth in his promises. Something we'll see over and over again in these covenants is when God makes a covenant with his people, it's always coupled with, here's who I am who's making this covenant with you. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that that idea of abounding in steadfast love, you see that all throughout the Psalms because this is a Hebrew word for God's covenant love, this idea of he's binding himself in his promises. He's not just saying, hey, I'll bring you dinner later, and he, he might or he might not. It's a marriage. In a marriage, you, you, you promise your whole self. You're not just kind of making a contract with other people. So this allows us, seeing that God has planned out salvation, allows us to see his character in the midst of his promises, his heart in the midst of his Promises. So again, we'll see this plan of salvation mainly unfold, not exclusively, but mainly unfold through his covenants. I've got just a definition there from Sam Amati, who's a pastor, a biblical scholar, uh, of, uh, on, on covenants. A covenant is a special set of promises that define a relationship between two people. With that comes privileges and responsibilities. So anybody can make covenants. Again, we make covenant, marriage covenants, but with God, he infuses covenants with his very character, his very self. He's binding himself to his people. So that's a primary way that God's going to unfold. You can think of the Old Testament as a giant rolled up scroll. And as we flick it open and as it rolls down the aisle, you'll see the promise begin to get more and more and more and more and more and more specific until we get to the New Testament. So that's what we're going to look at today, this more and more and more and more and more until we, we're going to stop right at Matthew 1. We'll take a little peek over at Matthew 1, but Lee will talk next week about the incarnation. But this week, we're looking at basically a survey of the Old Testament, particularly God's unfolding 
plan of salvation. And this, this initial roll of the scroll, if you will, if you want to stick with the image, begins in Genesis 3.15. So let me read this whole passage for us. We'll pluck out some things. This is the plot line of the Bible. This is the, the, the story, the narrative plot line of the scriptures that we'll see. Genesis 3, start at verse 14. The Lord, this is right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve, take a bite of the fruit, realize they're naked, run and flee, put fig leaves on themselves. God comes in the garden, asks, where are you? And Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, and this is how God responds. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've tempted Eve, and she's eaten the fruit, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust uh, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, to Eve, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. God said, be fruitful and multiply. That's going to be painful now. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and you shall rule over him. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the fruit of of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. He said, fill the earth and subdue. Push the garden out. Keep gardening until it covers the whole earth. Now that's going to be very painful. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Okay, so we see a couple things. Number one, what is cursed? We see childbirth and the ground is cursed. So the the mandate of Adam and Eve, again, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take this wonderful garden home and make it the whole world and represent me as those made in my image. Now, both of those roles, if you will, are going to be cursed, painful childbearing and painful gardening. Thorns and thistles rather than wonderful fruit and flowers will come from the ground. There's going to be sweat. It's going to be hard toil. You're going to eat as a result of Pain, that's cursed, but then notice there's something different with, what, with the curse over the serpent. Notice the serpent doesn't hear what is cursed, he hears who is cursed. The serpent hears, cursed are you. Adam and Eve do not hear, cursed are you. They hear, cursed is childbearing and cursed is the ground. The serpent hears, cursed are you. That's important, we'll talk about that in a second. And then what and who is promised. We see in Genesis 3.15, that's the great salvation promise starting the unrolling of the scroll in the scriptures. We see a seed is promised, offspring is promised. So we see, one, that there will be many offsprings that the woman will have and many offspring that the serpent will have, and they'll fight each other. There'll be conflict, there'll be enmity between those two offspring, between you and the woman and her offspring and your offspring. But then God gets more specific, and there's not plural offspring and plural offspring. There's a singular offspring, he, and there's a serpent, the serpent, he. There's not just going to be hostility. He's going to crush the serpent's head as the serpent bruises, crushes his heel. Okay, so there's a plural promise Many offspring, many offspring of the woman of Eve, kind of the people of God, if you want to think about it that way, and the people of the devil. But then within that people of God, there's one capital O promised seed who's not just going to crush the serpent's offspring, he's going to crush the serpent himself. And in so doing, reverse the curse. Undo the effects of the fall. Bring us back as we're being kicked out of the garden. And so we we will see in this, first of all, think about the plural, these conflict between seeds. One of the questions that we see, particularly in Genesis, uh, that man seems to have, and that us as the readers of Genesis should have, is who goes in which group? Okay, so in Genesis 4, right after the scene, in Genesis 4, 
Uh, Eve has Cain, and she has this great exclamation in Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived, this is a little bit later in your notes, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So she thinks, good, I've got this offspring. Maybe this is the promised one. Maybe this is the promised capital O, one seed. And what do we see later in Genesis 4? Cain kills Abel. And notice what Cain hears from God as God comes to him after he's killed Abel. Look at Genesis 4, 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Does Cain hear what is cursed or does Cain hear who is cursed? He hears, who is cursed? He hears the same thing the serpent heard, cursed are you. So which of these two does Cain go in? Is Cain the seed of the woman? Sure, literally, physically, but what is the scripture saying? Cain is the offspring of the serpent. Cain is a part of those who are opposed to the things of God. We also see that later in the book of Genesis. After Noah, uh, the ark is parked on uh, Mount Ararat, and they come off the mountain. Noah builds a garden and sins in the garden, kind of repeating Genesis 3. We talked about this last week. And he awoke, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, had done this thing to him, this dishonorable thing, not covering his nakedness. And then we see this. Noah says this, "'Cursed be Canaan.'" A servant of servants shall he be for his brother. So Canaan, one of Noah's grandkids, hears what? Cursed are you. What are the scriptures telling us? Where, where, where's Canaan fall? Which, which two? He falls here. Canaan will be an offspring of the serpent, seed of the serpent. And who is it that is constantly opposing Israel all throughout the scriptures? The people of Canaan. So you see that. Genesis 3.15, there's going to be two offsprings. They're going to constantly be fighting. And as the narrative continues, you see, okay, here are the people of God. We'll see that with Noah, with Abraham. And here are the people who are the seed of the serpent. When you get to the New Testament, you'll see John and Jesus called the Pharisees what? A brood of vipers. What are they getting at? I know who you are. You think you're this. You think you speak for God. You're really opposing the things of God. You're proving yourself to be the seed of the serpent, okay? So Genesis 3.15 puts that out there, but more importantly than that, there will be one seed. There will be a singular, capital S, seed or offspring who will not just fight against God's enemies. He will crush the serpent himself, crush the tempter himself. And again, uh, Eve knows this. Eve grasps this. So do the people who are reading the scriptures. They're, they're understanding this. We read in Genesis 1, Eve thinks, I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. That's an exclamation of maybe this is the one who's going to bring us back in the garden. We see that again with Noah's dad. Genesis 5 is at the end of the genealogies that we typically skip over. <laughs> when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. What's Lamech, Noah's dad, saying? Maybe this one is going to be the one who's going to bring us relief. No longer will the curse apply to us because maybe this one is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And it won't be by the sweat of our brow that we eat bread anymore, and thorns and thistles won't come from the cursed ground anymore. Lamech is excited. Maybe my son will be the capital S seed deliverer. So there's not just this God's people and the devil's people will fight against each other, although we, we do see that. There's a constant greater hope that one will come from God's people who will not just crush Goliath, who will crush the greatest Goliath, and in so doing, reverse the curse. Everything will roll back and will go back to being in our home with God. Okay. Spend a lot of time there because, again, this is, you see, right from the get-go. If you miss Genesis 3.15, so much of the scriptures won't make sense to you. David and Goliath will be a story of how you can beat the giants in your life. And Goliath was tall. Rather than, look, there it is again. The one of God is crushing the unbeatable, giving us great hope. One day, the seed will come and crush the ultimate Goliath. You see that? See how those are radically different pictures. So from the get-go, God is showing us in Genesis 3.15. And notice here, because everything we're going to talk about today, all of the promises of God's plan of salvation is going to come through this seed through this promised person, this promised offspring. Further notice, from the very beginning, 
The people of God should expect salvation not by their own performance and work, but rather by someone who's going to come rescue them. From the get-go, pre-law revealing our inability to keep God's perfect law, from the get-go we should realize we need someone who's not me and not you to come save us. It will not be by our good works, okay? So we see that. People looking for the seed, that's the plot line of the scriptures, and then we'll see this mainly unfolds through the covenants, okay? So move kind of the next big unfolding we see as the scroll rolls down the aisle. The next thing we see is the Abrahamic covenant, this first major kind of unfolding in in Genesis 12. It really develops all throughout Genesis, throughout Genesis, maybe 12 through 22 in particular. But God comes to Abraham. So Abraham is worshiping the moon in Ur. And God comes to him and says, leave your family and your kindred and come follow me. So God initiates this covenant. Again, let this scream God's character to you. Abraham is not looking for God. Abraham is not crying out, oh, Yahweh, I want to worship you. Come help and find me. Abraham has no idea who Yahweh is. And he's happy in his sin, worshiping other false gods. And God comes to Abraham because God wants his people in fellowship with him. He comes completely by grace from the get-go. God comes to Abraham and establishes his covenant. Genesis 12, and the Lord, now the Lord said to Abram, later Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, house to the Lord that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And, th- and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, without looking ahead in your notes, because I have the answer there. <laughs> what, are, what, are the kinda, what are some of the promises in this passage, in these three verses? All the families will be blessed. Will be blessed. Yeah, blessing. Great nation. Yeah, he's going to multiply. So what is that? That's... He's going to have offspring. He, who's an old man here, he's going to get much older before he has any kids. He's going to have offspring, yeah? Anything else? Say that again, Brett. Bless him and defend him. Yeah, he's going to be his. He's going to be God's chosen. There's one more. It's hidden. It gets more explicit later. Yeah, those who dishonor him. So again, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Those who oppose you, those who prove themselves here, will receive the curse. They will show themselves to be the seed of the serpent, which we most of the land of Canaan. And then the last thing there we see more explicitly is, is land. Go, go from your land with your father and go to the land that I will show you. So the three main things you could say, land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. A promised land, which why is that significant? Why is land important? What do you think? Say it again. Security. Security, yeah. You're not a wanderer. Huh? It's food, yeah. You can plant stuff on your land, yeah. In the context of the storyline, we've been kicked out of our home. We were made to dwell with God in the garden. And what we'll see here with Abraham, and it begins to flower more and more and more, particularly in the next covenant that we get to, this land that God is going to give Abraham and Abraham's kids, Israel, is going to be a Eden-like place in the midst of this thorns and thistles world. It's going to be a broad land. It's going to be flowing with what? Milk and honey, right? There's going to be tons of bees and tons of cattle. It's going to be fertile. And God tells them in Deuteronomy, you obey me, you follow my ways, guess what's going to happen? Your fruit will always show up in due season. I will give you rest from all of your enemies, right? It's meant to be a picture of a garden-like home in the midst of a thorns and thistles world. That's what the promised land is. It's not just that God wants to give them, you know, property. It's, no, go back again to creation. In my plan of redemption, I'm going to give you a place with me where you have fellowship with me and abundance that Adam and Eve were meant to have in the garden. Milk, honey, fruit, no enemies. I'm going to put them all away. That's what the land is meant to represent, okay? So secondly, 
we see seed. Abraham's going to have many offspring, right? He's going to give you nations. He'll later hear nations and even kings will come from you. And then later on, again, I said this developed later in Genesis 22, we don't just see Abraham, whose childless is going to have many kids. Again, there's a way to almost cheapen it. Like, they they, they can't have kids. That's sad. But God's going to be nice and give them many kids. Again, tie it back to Genesis 3.15. I'm going to give you Many, right? The seed of the woman. Many will come through you. And then in Genesis 22, we don't just see that he will have many kids. We'll see that one, the one, the capital S seed will come through him. This is right after the sacrifice of Isaac that God stops. Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, plural, as the stars in the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies. What's that? Is that this, many, or is that the one? It's the one. I will, it will be sand on the seashore, stars in the sky, there will be many offspring, but through that many offspring, the, Genesis 3.15, promised one will come, and what will he do? He will possess the gate of his enemies. He will crush the head of the serpent. You see that. Again, the promise being the ultimate blessing coming from that one, the promise being reinforced. Paul's going to pick up on this. The New Testament authors pick up on this. Paul says in Genesis 3.16, for the promise that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul knows his Bible very well. And he's very much looking closely at God's plan of salvation. He's at the end of the scroll, looking at Jesus and looking back and saying, God preached this gospel that I'm preaching in Genesis 22. The seed would come and it's Christ. See that? So the seed and then ultimately blessing. So there's, a, there's a, a general blessing that Israel was meant to be. His many descendants, his kids, the nation of Israel, would bless the nations by showing here's what it looks like to worship Yahweh and be Yahweh's people. But we know the ultimate blessing would come through the one seed that would come from Abraham that would, again, reverse the curse and bring us back to God. That the fellowship with him that we were made for would be restored. Okay? Last thing I have there, uh, it's very important for you to see. In the same way it's important for you to see God's the one constantly initiating Covenants, God's one constantly coming to us, rebellious us, and saying, come be my people. It's very important to see with Abraham, Abraham lived by faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not great people. They're constantly telling their wives, hey, will you say you're my sister so this guy won't kill me? And then that guy like takes him into their house to be his wife as they pass away. You're like, I'm not going to get killed, right? They're pretty weak. They're not great examples to follow. God is not painting a picture of, look at awesome man. Follow their awesome example because there is no awesome man. Moses fails. David will fail spectacularly. There is no one who is good. No, not one. Don't make that mistake with Abraham. Rather, the scriptures say to you very clearly in Genesis, and then again, Paul's going to highlight it in many of his writings that Abraham lived by faith and he was counted as righteous. Our role as God unfolds his plan of salvation and makes these promises is not to say, okay, I'll do my best and maybe earn your favor, oh God, but rather to say, I trust that you are good. I trust those promises. Our role is faith. Our role is receiving with an open hand the wonderful promises of God. We see that in Abraham very explicitly, okay? So that's the first, and okay, the big, broad Genesis 3.15, really broad, Abraham. Okay, I've eliminated the rest of the world. It's going to be through Abraham, and then it's going to get more and more specific. Next covenant we see is with the people of Israel, what's often called the Sinai covenant, sometimes the Mosaic covenant. Okay, so Abraham has uh, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel, has 12 tribes. In the beginning of Exodus, they have a lot of kids. They become a great nation at the beginning of Exodus, but they're in slavery. They cry out to God, and God delivers them. We see the Exodus, God bringing them out by this mighty hand of salvation. Again, not by the good of what they have done. They can't do anything. They're slaves. All they can do is cry out, but God hears and delivers them completely by his grace, and he parks them as, as he's defeated the entire army, the entire Egyptian army, collapsing the Red Sea on them. He parks them in front of Mount Sinai to establish this covenant with him. First thing to notice, God is establishing covenant with Israel 
after he has saved them. There's a massive misunderstanding that is, also, is often phrased as, the New Testament's all about grace, the Old Testament's all about works. And we often get that from looking at books like Leviticus, you should be holy for I am holy, or Numbers, or really any of the, the first five books of Moses. Notice that's completely backwards. God saves them, delivers them, marries them, then enters into covenant with him. It is completely by his grace. It is not, oh, I'll pick you, let's see if you can do good enough to earn my favor and be my people. He saves them. Then he enters into covenant with them. There's also a, a little bit of uh, a pattern we'll see in a couple weeks where uh, he brings them out of the Exodus through the sacrifice of a lamb, through the Passover lamb. It's the great deliverance as they're brought out in great victory. There's a, there's a pattern beginning to emerge. But then he parks them in front of Mount Sinai again after saving them by his grace and says this in Exodus 19. The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and notice this, brought you where? To myself. Not to some random land. I didn't want you there. I'm going to put you there. I brought you to myself. Why does God save his people? He wants fellowship. He wants the relationship that you were created for to be established. I brought them to myself. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people, Israel, all the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, so you see them saying, yes, we want this right at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And then you see in this covenant I have for you there uh, a couple things to notice. One, God goes to great lengths uh, in the book of Exodus in particular to, to give plans and designs for building the tabernacle, what would later be the temple in, Jesus's, or in uh, David's day, so that his presence can dwell among them. Again, God wants to be with his people. He doesn't just want to be uh, appearing in a giant fiery cloud on top of Mount Sinai. He wants to be in the middle of the camp. And in Numbers, they're told to camp literally around his presence. And God goes to great lengths to build this tabernacle. And in fact, the first people that are filled with the Spirit in the whole Bible are those who are going to make the beautiful tabernacle where God's presence is going to dwell with his people. Again, God wants to be with his people. Then we see God also gives them the law if they're going to be God's chosen people, if they're going to represent him as Adam and Eve were meant to, those made in his image to represent God to the rest of the world, if they're going to be a nation that represents him, they need to uh, do that. They need to display his character. They need to represent him well. And so we have the, the law, which we get really the first five books of the scriptures, which are called the Torah, the law of Moses. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy has the most heavy portions, um, numbers as well. Uh, but again, it's, it's important to see if the world's going to look in, if the nation's going to look in, in, at Israel, they need to be distinct. They need to be different. They need to look like the God that they worship. So the pur that's the purpose of the law. Look like the God that you're worshiping. Be holy, for I am holy. We see over and over and over again in the book of Leviticus. They're meant to show, if you want to think about it this way, what this fellowship with God, what this relationship with God is like. If other nations worship Baal and they worship Asherah and all these false gods that require child sacrifice and things like that, they are clearly displaying, this is what it's like to serve this God. He is brutal and wicked, but he makes our crops grow if we serve him enough. And rather, Israel is meant to show and display something radically different. Our God dwells with us. He doesn't dwell in the sky. We don't need to cut open a goat liver and try to read the tea leaves to see what he wants. He comes down and tells us after he's redeemed us. That's what living with our God is like. And he's holy and he's good and he's pure. Again, notice this isn't do this so that you can enter into relationship with me. It's rather do this because you've already been brought into relationship with me. See that? That's a very important distinction. And then ultimately, the, even some of the, the diet and dress this way, that's just meant to be distinct. A lot of the, the forbidden animals were used in pagan worship. So if they're going to go into the promised land, they need to look radically different than the rest of the people. And then the result of the law, honestly, as they have to constantly make sacrifices, was to show you need forgiveness. You are sinful. I am not. I am holy. You are not. You need sacrifice. You need atonement for your sin. That need to be born into their minds. And ultimately, it's going to come through the seed. It's going to come through the Genesis 315 
promised one. That's what Israel is meant to embody. And then we see God has installed the sacrificial system. If we're going to be in fellowship with God as sinful people, something has to be done about our sin. And so we see God, God again, uh, originates in his mind. He installs the sacrificial system so that he can dwell in our midst and all of us not be consumed. Okay? And then we see those three promises reiterated all throughout Exodus, Leviticus, uh, numbers and Deuteronomy, that land, seed, and blessing. Again, the land, what's the great cry? We're going to the promised land. Again, we're going to this Eden-like place in this thorns and thistles world where if we obey, if we cling to our God and don't worship false gods, Deuteronomy tells us, there will be no miscarriages. Our, our fruit will always bear in due season. The enemies will be put away. God will fight for us. Even though there's giants in the land, that won't matter. Our God's going to fight for us, and it will be this Eden-like oasis in this broken world that should make the rest of the nation say, whoa, what is radically different about you and can we come worship your God? That's what Israel's meant to be. So that's what the land is meant to kind of show, dwelling in a land with God in his tabernacle or in his temple. Seed, we see the, the promised seed has multiplied to a whole nation, but then again, there's this expectation of this one seed, which keeps getting more and more specific. Okay, it's going to come through Abraham, not the rest of the world. It's going to come through Jacob, not Esau. Jacob, who's later changed to Israel. In Genesis, we see it's going to come through Judah, not the other 11. Uh, Jacob gives blessings in, in Genesis 29. And Judah is the one who is going to hold the scepter. The king, the, the promised seed is going to come from him. And then in Numbers, there's a, there's a prophecy where Israel's going through. They're making their way to the promised land. And Balaam is this kind of weird witch doctor who can curse people. And he's hired by the king of Midian to come curse Israel. And every time he tries to curse them, God puts a blessing in his mouth. So he accidentally blesses them every single time. And the king's like, what are you doing? I've paid you to do the opposite of this. And his final curse turned to a blessing on the whole people of Israel is this in Numbers 24. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of man who sees and open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will, what's that word? Crush. Again, that should make your antennas fly up and fling you back into Genesis 3.15. I know who he's talking about. He will crush the forehead, forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And the one from Jacob shall exercise dominion, there's Adam's call, and destroy the survivors of the city. So this great blessing says what? I see the one who's going to come. Not now, but he's going to come through Israel. And what's he going to do? Crush all of God's enemies. And he's going to have perfect dominion, just like Adam was called. He's going to bring about Eden again. He's going to reverse the curse. You see that? Okay. So we see the seed isn't just, oh, Israel's a, a country now. They're a big nation now. We see the seed is also promised again and again. And the ultimate blessing is going to come through him coming. Israel is meant to be a blessing. They're meant to be a kingdom of priests to all the nations. But again, the ultimate blessing is going to come through the one who will crush and reverse the curse. And unfortunately, what we see all throughout the scriptures is the true result of the law is that Israel can't keep the law. As Moses is getting the instructions for the tabernacle so that God can dwell in their midst, what happens as he's up on the mountain? What does Israel go and immediately do? As they've already heard, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any image of me. They go make a golden calf. You could say on their wedding night, they commit adultery. And that will repeat itself over and over and over again. So if there's anything that the history of Israel screams now that we have God's perfect law, it's last week's teaching. We are totally depraved. We are wholly unable to save ourselves or to merit our way to salvation. We need the promised one to come. Something has to be done about our sin. We need atonement that won't just take away our sin temporarily. We need something to take it away forever. And something needs to be done about these hearts. We can't just have circumcision, the sign of Abraham's covenant. We need circumcised hearts. There needs to be a nature change, Israel shows us, and we begin to see the focus drift there when the prophets show up. But before we get there, let's look at one more big covenant, which is just more primarily focused on the seed, the Davidic covenant. So David, 
sweet King David who, uh, as a little boy tending to the field, uh, I like how the Bible describes him as weak. He's always talking about he's you know, beautiful, and he's apparently so unimpressive, he's not, he's not putting the line up for the king. But then his resume for why he can go fight Goliath the Saul is like, oh yeah, one time a lion came and got a sheep, and I just killed it real quick. I'm like, okay, man, how awesome must his brothers have been. Anyway, uh, so David, man after God's own heart, the great uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. David becomes king. It's the heyday of Israel's history. It's the only time where it says they, they put away their enemies. They have rest. And David has, realizes, I'm sitting in a palace, and God's presence is in a tent. It's in a tabernacle. Why am I sitting in a better building than God's presence is? So he wants to build a temple, a house for God. And God comes to him through the prophet Nathan and says, you're not going to do it. Your son, Solomon, is going to do it. But, I won't read it. It's there for you. But you want to build me a house? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a, a, a dynasty. And in fact, your son will sit on the throne and not just have your success. He will sit on the throne forever and he will be before me forever. And so now all of a sudden, the, the seed promise has gone from Abraham to Jacob, not Esau, to Judah, not the 11, to now he's going to be one of David's sons, and this promised seed is going to be a king. And through his reign is the curse going to be reversed. Through his reign, actually, the Lord will reign. So this massive development. And who is this seed that we're looking for? Where he's going to be a king from David's line. So you see that specificity in, in the land. His, his reign will bring about this kind of garden-like dominion. Again, Adam and Eve were meant to take dominion over the earth, kind of push out the garden all over all of creation. His reign is going to do that as he sits on the throne forever, and his reign will be a blessing. Uh, those that he, uh, he will reign righteously over, he will reign justly over, and they will be blessed, right? He'll put away his enemies. We've talked about this a couple times. It's a funny example, but it's a good example. Uh, who the king is and how the king reigns determines how uh, the nation is blessed. So if you think of the movie The Lion King, when Mufasa is reigning, there's lush green fields, Right? The gazelles go skipping through. They don't even care that they're going to get eaten because one day the lions are going to die. They go into the ground. They become grass, and the gazelles eat the grass or whatever Mufasa says. Right? Everybody's happy with the circle of life, but then who takes over? Scar. And what instantly happens, he's not just wicked and like oppressive. What happens the next time you see Pride Rock? It's gross. It's rainy. All the green is gone. There's just bones everywhere. And then Simba takes over. And what do we see by the end of the movie? A good, righteous king has restored beauty to the land, blessing to the land. And so in a similar way, the reign of this king is going to bring great blessing to the whole land, which is going to undo the curse. And so notice here, we who love autonomy, we who love to say, I will be God, God will not be God, our salvation is going to come through submitting to a king. You must take that fake crown off your head if you are going to be saved and bow the knee to the Savior, Seed, King. We see that in David. So you see how the unfolding is just getting closer and closer and closer. But then again, throughout the rest of Israel's history, all of David's kids are a train wreck except for a couple. Hezekiah and Josiah are pretty good, but not, this, not promised king forever good. Right? And so we're left waiting and longing for this king to come who will reign perfectly forever. We keep seeing we can't save ourselves. Again, uh, something has to be done about this heart of ours that is so inclined for rebellion. And when the prophets show up, when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk, and they all show up, they bring about a final new covenant that we've all been waiting for in this time. So the prophets show up to rebellious Israel almost all the time, uh, and they do a couple things. One, they call Israel back to God. They say, you've left God. You stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai and said, all this and more we will do, and you haven't. You've rebelled. You, you've, you've, instead of the nations coming into Israel and says, who is your God? We want to worship him too. The opposite has happened. You've gone out, and you've said, who are your fake gods? Because we want to worship them too, and you've become blind like they're blind gods. The prophets call them back. They pronounce the curses. Here's what's going to happen. Since you've left, 
your, uh, your true God. We see that in Deuteronomy. And then one thing they do is they promise a new covenant, the ultimate unfolding, the ultimate end of the scroll that's going to come. And I have a ton of verses there for you. I'm obviously not going to read those for the sake of time, but I'll just, I'll run through the highlights that we see all throughout uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. One thing, particularly, uh, all of these promises, again, are centered around this promised seed. Again, the plot line of the scriptures. We, we see, first of all, in Isaiah 9, Daniel 7, a, couple, a little bit in Micah 2, this seed isn't just going to be a forever king. He's going to be divine. In uh, Isaiah 9, he's called Almighty God. This unto us, a child is born. This offspring has come. This seed has finally come that was promised, but he's going to be called Almighty God. In Daniel 7, we see in this vision, he stands before God, the Ancient of Days, and he inherits this eternal kingdom, this eternal dominion as this kind of divine figure. So that's a new development that we see. We see uh, that his kingdom will actually cover the whole earth. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So his reign, the land, if you want to think about it that way, will be the whole earth as, as Eden was meant to be and all will praise God, his blessing will flow out. We see this picture in Ezekiel. There's a river that will flow from his throne that will heal all that is broken. Revelation will pick up on that and say that's what's happening in the new heavens and the new earth. We see these passages where the wolf and the lamb lie down together. The, the child plays over the snake hole. All the chaos of the broken world has been brought to peace by the reign of this king and the nations stream in to worship him, to sit at his feet so that blessing has gone forth. And then more magnificently, we see uh, man, the sinner, the totally depraved, his sin is dealt with by the seed. We get new hearts. No longer will uh, his law be external on tablets of stone. Rather, God says, I will write my my law on their hearts. In fact, God says, I will give them a new heart. And in fact, I'm going to put my spirit within them. And ultimately, that sin is going to be taken away through the seed. In Isaiah 53, we see he's wounded for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed, and upon him is laid the iniquity of us all. How is the blood of the bulls and goats finally going to atone for our sin? It can't, but the seed's blood can and will, the prophets proclaim. And then finally, the most important thing, the fellowship with our God that we lost as we're kicked out of the garden is restored. What does God say? No longer will they go around saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They will all know me. The the prophets, as they're pronouncing judgment for their rebellion against God, also pour out the beautiful blessings of the new covenant that will come when the seed, when the key offspring comes and redeems the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3. So you see, all these are pointing to a person. This person is going to come. So that's the plan of the Old Testament. That's the scroll. We roll it down the aisle. It finally gets to the end, and that's what we have. These wonderful promises to cling to, this great anticipation of when is he going to show up? When is the one going to come? that is going to take this wicked heart away and give me a new heart that can actually love the Lord my God? When is he going to write his law on my heart? When is this wickedness going to be dealt with? When am I going to get to go walk in the garden in the cool of the day with my God again and be brought home to the one I was made for? That's what the Old Testament leaves us longing for. When is he going to come now? When you crack open your pages of the New Testament, what's the first thing Matthew is very concerned about? You're like, oh, come on. What's the first thing? We get the genealogy. Come on, give me to the good stuff. Casting out demons, all that kind of stuff. What is Matthew doing? The promised offspring is here. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the Genesis 3.15, one that was promised. Do you see that now? Matthew is very concerned. The one I'm about to tell you about, the one who's going to come and say the kingdom of God is here, it's the one that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3, capital S, seed. The offspring is here. And we will see over the next three weeks, what does the seed do when he comes? We'll see his incarnation next week. We'll see his life 
the week after, and then we'll see him on the cross the week after that. My favorite professor used to say, the key question of our salvation is, can man rise up to God, or does God have to come down to man? And next week, we'll see the answer to that question. God comes down to man all, notice, according to God's clear, deliberate plan. Paul says in first, or 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So that's what we see. The Jesus-saturated Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi until we roll over into the New Testament and see him appear. You have a salvation that's been brought to you because your God is a planning God, is an intentional, calling, drawing God. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless my Father first draws him. We have a God who has planned this salvation, who's initiated it time and time again because that's who he is. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he wants you near him. He wants you to know him and to treasure him as he knows you and treasures you, his children. We see it time and time again in the tabernacle, in the temple, and then ultimately in his son, in the promised one that we'll see. William Cooper, the, the hymn writer, wrote many, many years ago in his great hymn. We sing it often at this church. God moves in mysterious ways. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, for God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And as we see the scroll unrolled, he has made it very plain. The end of the scroll is a giant arrow pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, the Son in whom we have life in. Let's pray. Father, we love you that this is who you are and this is what you have done. And so we pray that we would <laughs> respond as we ought. We would respond as you would have us. How can we respond other than just stand in awe and wonder and worship? Uh, as we see over and over again at your great acts of deliverance in the Red Sea and all these different scenarios where it just says they, they bow their heads and they praise God. What else can you do when you see such a wonderful salvation that our wonderful God has initiated, not just apart from us, but in spite of us, in spite of our rebellion? There is none but you, Father. And I pray that we would long for you all the more and praise you all the more and see your son all the more beautiful. Lord, I pray in his name. Amen.